This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number seven. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined here today by another great guest. He is an iOS and Mac developer and an awesome reverse engineer. He's the creator of the WWDC app for Mac OS, and he has been in the Apple-related news quite a lot lately uh, because he found and he published a lot of product details from leaked firmwares and SDKs. It's G Rambo. Welcome to the show, G. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. How did I do with the name pronunciation? Well, people will usually pronounce it like Guy, but I, I kind of like the G sound, so I'm not sure. Maybe I'm going to change the official pronunciation. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So uh, I've been looking through you know, your work. I've been following you for a while. And uh, over the last couple of years, it's been kind of clear that what you are really into is reverse engineering. Uh, just to kind of recap the things that you know, you've made the last couple of years or so is that you made a native Mac app for viewing WWDC videos, and then you made a native Mac app for Overcast for playing podcasts, and then you've done all these product discoveries lately leading up to the latest Apple events. So what is it about reverse engineering that, that really interests you? I think it comes from my curiosity. I'm a very curious person. And when you reverse engineer, you have to like follow leads and do kind of an investigation to find stuff. And that really drives me. I can spend hours trying to find something that I'm looking for. Or sometimes I find some surprises in there, like in the HomePod firmware. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it comes from being really curious and wanting to know how things work. That, that's, that's what drives my interest towards reverse engineering. Cool. So it's like you don't, you're not really satisfied until you've kind of taken something apart and kind of understood how it works under the hood. Mm -hmm, yeah, like the, the kid that uh, like tears down the, the toys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what kind of got you started? Like, because when I think about reverse engineering, you know, I've, I obviously know about some kind of very common techniques like decompiling and things like that and looking into symbols. But if I was gonna start reverse engineering, even something like a leaked HomePod firmware, I wouldn't really know where to start. So where do you kind of start? Like what angle do you take when you, when you get something like that in your hands? It depends on what you want to get out of it. Like with the HomePod stuff, uh, I, I, at the, the start, I wanted to like find out how the HomePod would work, how it behaved, uh, which apps it, it, it had. So I, I started just looking around the firmware, just like which apps are in there, which frameworks, what's in there, basically. Just, just looking at the files. And then, since I wanted to know how it worked, I started to decompile stuff, uh, frameworks, apps. I think I started with the uh, the Air Podcasts app, which is like the, the podcasts app for the HomePod. 
and and then I, I went from from there. But if you are trying to like find stuff about uh, new features or new products, you usually spend most of your time looking at strings. So you basically dump all strings from the firmware or app or framework and search for keywords like for the face ID stuff. I I think I started looking for face detect, like this exact string I searched for and and then I noticed that uh, there were face detect strings in biometric kit, which is the framework that's currently used for touch ID. And that that's what got me in the lead to like figure out, well, they're doing something with face recognition in and biometry. So there's something in there. Yeah, so at that point, it's kind of like confirming something that was already rumored, right? Because uh, there was already leaks or rumors from, you know, I don't know where it came from, but there were several reports uh, that Apple would do some kind of face recognition system in the upcoming iPhone. So what you did there was kind of like digging in and starting searching for strings related to that just to kind of confirm that those things were actually in the software, right? Yeah, uh, and it's not always like that simple. You, sometimes you don't know what you're looking for and you just like poke around and uh, spelunk the, the firmware to try and find uh, interesting things. Sometimes you diff, you, you do like you have the previous version of the firmware and the new one and you diff between the two to like find new stuff. So yeah, it can like, you can go at it from different angles, definitely. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess it de depends on what you're looking for and what you have in your hands as well, right? Yeah, and there's another type of reverse engineering, which is uh, when you're trying to figure out why something is behaving the way it is. Let's say you're trying to use some UIKit API and it's behaving strangely. Sometimes you can reverse engineer, uh, decompile the UIKit binary and look around to see the methods it calls and what it expects from you. Uh, that can be useful. Even when you go and eventually file a radar with Apple, you can uh, provide more information if you have like uh, knowledge of how it works. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I guess that can be super useful. Yeah, sure. So we're going to dive in a lot more into detail when we get to the questions section, because uh, a lot of people have sent in questions, which is really awesome, uh, because this is something that a lot of people seem to be really curious about. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to, you know, get to know you a little bit. So what got you started with programming in general, uh, before you became uh, you know, before you got really into reverse engineering, wha what did you do then and kind of what got you started? The first programming ever I've done was in Delphi back when I was like 12 years old. I, I, I'm not sure what got me interested in programming. I, I think I just liked to make stuff and my dad works with electronics, so uh, the family has like the technical side very well developed, 
so so yeah i i would like uh walk into my my dad uh disassembling televisions and radios and all sorts of stuff and i always found that f fascinating so i think that's where my interest in technical stuff comes from and i manifest that in software so i started i i had like a course on delphi and made some little silly calculator apps and stuff and after that i started working as a web developer and i made some websites from for small companies and when i got my first mac i started to make some little mac apps because it it reminded me reminded me of delphi because of interface builder and the way you drag components and link them to code so i think maybe the the delphi thing came back to me and <laughs> the delphi returned yeah <laughs> uh because delphi wa was like i think it, it exists still but it's like interface builder you drag components and link them to code and then you respond to events so yeah so i started like just making some silly mac apps and i fell in love with objective c which is interesting <laughs> uh <laughs> I, i know it's not very popular but uh yeah so that's and then of course when the when i got my iphone i wanted to make apps for it and then i got into ios development cool so you've been around and you've been doing uh, objective c and programming for apple's platforms before it was cool right before before ios came into the picture yeah i think when i was doing the mac stuff ios already existed but i i didn't have an iphone so i didn't really care yeah but but yeah i've i've been doing it for quite a while yeah that's really cool Uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned this way of getting started because it's very similar to how I got started. I also got started with this like visual way of, it wasn't programming, but it was this uh, Windows application called Click and Play uh, where you could make games by like dragging and dropping graphics in and you could define events and define how different objects would interact with each other. And I always call that like my gateway drug into programming because it wasn't really programming. There wasn't any code involved, but it was the same kind of mindset and the same uh, kind of methodology of, of, of coming up with solutions and, and chain of events. And it's interesting to hear so many people have similar origin stories where they got started with something that wasn't programming, but kind of was, right? Yeah, and how many people we know started with like HyperCard and that kind of stuff. And I think in the future we'll probably hear about people who got started uh, on their iPads with Swift Playgrounds. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Just making it more accessible and less intimidating, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions? Let's go. Let's do it. All right, so as you know, this show is all about answering questions that were submitted by the listeners. And it's really the backbone of the show. So I'm really thankful for everybody who sends in questions and to, who, who continues to do so. And the way you submit questions is you go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, where there's a form where you can send either a question or a topic, or you can just tweet to at swiftbysundell on Twitter Uh, either just a question or a topic or something you'd like us to talk about on a future episode. 
So to start things off, we have a great question here from Ciela Salazar, who is at 27Alake on Twitter. And she asks, what prerequisite skills are needed to become a reverse engineer? So if you want to get started with reverse engineering, what do you think you should learn, G, to kind of do your first reverse engineering tasks? Um, well, programming, basically. Uh, so That's a good one. That's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think you have to know anything else, basically. You don't even have... Uh, people have, like, this thing that they think you have to no assembly to be a reverse engineer and you really don't like uh, i know very basic assembly um and i know very basic x86 64 assembly i don't know arm 64 assembly which is the assembly you're going to see when you're working with ios binaries so yeah if you are like an ios developer and you have a tool like Hopper, which is a Mac, native Mac uh, disassembler, and you can get a demo version, which does a lot of stuff for free from the website. And that's it. You just drag a binary into there and you start looking at the symbols. And if you look at like an app from Apple, like the, let's say the podcast app, you're going to find that there's not any real magic in there. It's, it's just an app, like the apps you work on. And you can get a pretty good picture of how the app is architected and how it works just by looking at class names and method names and what calls into what. So yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not very complicated, actually. Yeah, I think sometimes people have this... Um idea that someone who does reverse engineering is someone who they just have a black screen with green text assembly like the matrix right and they're just oh i can read this i know exactly now how it works just by seeing this big chunk of assembly code but what you're saying kind of confirms that that isn't so yeah it's way more boring than that <laughs> uh, and, uh, just so and i'm talking about like uh, the Apple scene, the iOS and Mac reverse engineering. There are all the other kinds of reverse engineering. Uh, there are some people that do like low-level microcontroller firmware reverse engineering. I can't do that kind of stuff. It's another skill. So uh, we are talking about iOS. And the thing is, stuff is made with Objective-C. And even stuff that's made with Swift is kind kind of easy to reverse engineer because you'll see the method names like just as is so it makes it easier to reverse engineer yeah because both swift and objective c uh they kind of publish their entire uh what is it called again the uh the table like the, the call table uh where all the symbols are right yeah and with Swift, the Apple offers now when you submit to the App Store the option to strip Swift symbols. So I guess if you get an app from from the App Store and you happen to reverse engineer it, you have a harder time finding stuff because you don't have the symbols. But it's still doable, definitely. So what you're saying is that Hopper is like your main tool that you use. Uh, that's like 
what you start with and you start looking into things through that app. Yes, uh, there are other reverse engineering tools for, for the Mac and iOS, but Hopper is like the best value for your money. It's 99 bucks and it, it's really worth it if you're doing this a lot. Uh, so yeah, and it's a native Mac app. It works very well and I use it all the time. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to it so people can go check it out if you want to get started and trying to, uh, to reverse engineer some stuff. Great. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's some really great insights on how to get started. So thanks a lot for that question, Ciela. And we'll move now over to the next one, which comes from Jonathan Ruiz, who is at JohnJohn1251. It's always fun to read out people's Twitter, Twitter handles. <laughs> uh, and he is asking how you approach looking for info on new products. So we touched on it a little bit before you were speaking about that you start by you know, looking into the strings or looking into the symbols and try to see kind of what evidence there is um, around new products. But could you walk us through a little bit more in detail, like, like how your process looks like you, uh, when, you, when you look for something new? You usually start with some rumor. That's like the easiest way to, to begin with. So you know that People are saying that Apple is going to have face detection in, instead of Touch ID on the next phone. And then you think, okay, how, how are they going to call this in the firmware? So I guess it, it's going to have something like face detect. And then the story I told you before, so you look for face detect. And then you start look, looking at what's around it. So when I found the face detection stuff in biometric kit, I I went to Hopper, of course, and I opened biometric kit, the framework binary in Hopper, and I noticed the everything that had face stuff was in some class that had the name Perl ID. So okay, so Perl ID is probably the code name for the face detection feature. And then with this name, I start to look for Perl ID everywhere in the firmware. And from there, I found uh, lots of Perl-related strings with D22 in them. So, okay, so what's D22? It's probably a code name for a new product because Apple names their products with like like this, like the, I think the previous iPhone was uh, D20. So yeah, so, and then you start looking for D22. So one thing leads to another and I ended up finding the, the glyph for the D22, the iPhone X as we know it now. So, so yeah, you, you start with uh, a little information you have or, or some rumor and you go, go from there and you end up following leads and sometimes you follow something that leads to nothing and sometimes you'll find something interesting. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of dead ends that you encounter as well and trying to kind of filter out those dead ends from what is actually, you know, something worth worth pursuing. I guess that can be quite tricky as well. Yeah, and you have to be aware of false positives. Like sometimes you're going to see something that 
confirms something, but it it's not that. It's something else, and and yeah, it, I I'm trying to explain a process that takes several hours in minutes. So yeah, it takes it takes hours, and sometimes you find something and you you don't know you found something. Like when I first rendered the D22 glyph, it, it's like a core animation uh, representation of an image, so you have to write code to render it. And I messed up the code and rendered it sideways. <laughs> and I, th I, I thought it was like an image of a credit card or, or something because it was in all oh, right yeah yeah it was in the wallet frameworks so and and i closed it and went on and like two hours later i i went back <laughs> and, <laughs> and and then i i managed to render it correctly and and then i i was kind of surprised so I think that's that thing there is super interesting. So you said that you found some code, like you found some basically assembler instructions to render like a CA layer or something like that? It's actually a, a file format. It's called a core animation arch archive. Ah, okay. Uh, so it's basically a CA layer tree that's uh, keyed archived to a file. Right, so it's when you do the init with coder API yeah. on CA layer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and and so, so yeah, so you have to write code to to render that. And actually, now I have a a project called Car Player, so it's C A A R Player, which does this for you. So you don't have to write the code; it's on my GitHub. Uh, oh, and, perfect! Yeah, and and it even <laughs> has a quick look, so that that's fun. So it's it's user friendly too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you. You have to write code, and and I messed it up and rendered it incorrectly, and thought it was nothing, and it, it was something. Lucky that you went back and actually re-examined that credit card once again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, is there anything else, like any other vector that you take, or um, any other? Like when you don't have a leak, for example, you don't have a rumor, like is there anywhere you start or you just like start looking through and diffing and seeing if there's some new interesting symbols? Diffing is interesting. Uh, it can lead to discoveries. Uh, I think like one or two of the things I found in the HomePod firmware were from diffing and finding new stuff. But um, most of the things come by accident, basically. When you're looking for something else, you end up finding, like, uh, an interesting string. And, and, like, how do you know what's interesting? That comes from experience, basically. I've, I've been doing this for a while, and so I, I, I know if something is new or different or interesting just by looking at the... The names of things I know lots of stuff about uh, the internal workings of iOS. So when I I see something new, I usually spot it easily. So that's the part that comes from experience, learning by doing, I guess. Yeah. Cool. So the next question we have is uh, a little bit about the kind of moral side of publishing things that you find. So Steve, who is at ArcRandom, that's another great uh, programmer-related handle. 
he asks, what moral conflict did you have uh, in order to leak the things that you found? So when you find something, um, what do you think before you kind of publish it? So when Apple talk about these things and they talk about secrecy, they they often say that the reason they're so secretive is because the teams that are working on these products and working on something, they want to be able to kind of control the narrative of something. And when something gets leaked, that narrative is kind of lost a little bit. So is that something you think about when you spelunk into these these firmwares or or what what is your what is your thinking around that? I think the first thing I have to explain is that um, I don't leak anything. Like uh, with any of the the leaks that happened recently, uh, I was not the one that was given the task of keeping the thing secret, basically. So like with the HomePod firmware, they just published it as an update publicly. So... Uh, some people have like the idea that uh, me and other people doing this are like uh, breaking into Apple servers or something. <laughs> that <laughs> that's not what we are doing. And if it required that, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, so right, there are limits, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't think it really hurts them that much. I think the the rumors that come way before uh, a new phone is unveiled hurt them a lot because then people stop buying the the current generation. But the controlling the narrative thing, I I don't buy that. I don't think it it really uh, like the 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 September event for me. What was really exciting. Even though I uh, we knew everything basically that was going to come out, I, I was just as excited as I would be uh, on other occasions. So I don't really buy that. But if you ask me, do you like that Apple is leaking stuff? I'd say no. I, I would prefer them to not leak stuff, especially in silly ways like they've done this year. The HomePod thing was like just a silly mistake, uh, like a ridiculous mistake. And the GM was like security by obscurity, which is also silly, like for Apple to be doing. So, so yeah, basically I don't see a problem after I get the information uh, I don't feel like I have to hold it to myself. Yeah, and it would be really hard too. You know, you have something which is super exciting and everyone is kind of, you know, really eager to find out what's going to be in the next iPhone and you know. So, you know, are you just going to hold it to yourself and just sit there and, you know, shake and be like, oh, I can't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like really frustrating, right? Yeah, and just to be clear, like if I was working for Apple or for any company, like my company sometimes has stuff that I can't tell anyone. And of course I don't because that's my duty, but I, I'm not a, an Apple employee. But if I were to be an Apple employee, I would definitely keep stuff for myself because then I'd have a working employment contract with them and stuff. But yeah, so so yeah, and and I I I've, 
like I'm I'm not a security researcher, but I am a researcher. So when firmware goes out, I research it and find cool stuff and publish it. And uh, if you look at my tweets, they are usually um, I'm usually not asserting stuff. I'm just saying like, hey, here's the thing I found. This is interesting. I think this might mean X or Y. Like I, I'm not like saying the next iPhone is this. Like <laughs> right, because it's not like they are giving you uh, their product copy or that the product copy is in is in the firmware, right? It doesn't say exactly what they're gonna say on stage. So really, what you're doing is kind of you know you see some see some signals and you're kind of guessing based on those signals, right? Yeah, and everything is subject to change. So uh, y if you have like a beta firmware and you start looking around it and find stuff, that stuff can change. Like we could have found the all of the face ID stuff in the firmware and then when the iPhone came out, it didn't have anything <laughs> uh, because the manufacturing didn't work or something. Uh, also, uh, like just as an example, the firmware for the Apple remote, the new Apple remote, has stuff in there for calibration of a Taptic engine. So I said uh, on Twitter that like, looks like the new Apple remote will have uh, haptics and turns out it doesn't. Uh, we don't know exactly why, but there's obviously a reason and they obviously tried it because it's in the, the firmware for the remote. So, so yeah, so just because I found something in the firmware, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come out. Yeah, exactly. And I really agree with you what you said before, where it's like some people, they kind of feel that the excitement of the new Apple event is lost because there were so many things that were leaked. But I agree with you that I actually found it. I even tweeted about it that I actually uh, found the the last Apple event to be more exciting than ever because there were so many kind of details that we've seen, but we hadn't seen the entire picture and we hadn't heard the story about it. And kind of knowing just all these kind of plot points, it's kind of like a little bit like watching the trailer for a movie. Uh, so you kind of know the major plot points, but you haven't seen the movie. You haven't heard the story, right? And that's kind of where the interesting part for me lies. Yeah, someone said on Twitter, like, it's like you have all of the ingredients for the cake, but you don't know how it tastes like yet. Yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> all right, so we're going to leave the subject of reverse engineering a little bit for now, uh, because, of course, that's what you've been uh, publishing a lot lately and doing a lot lately, but you've also been doing a bunch of other things. So I also wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about some other things like Mac development, for example. So we have a question here from Ibrahima Sis, who is at uh, Bionic6 on Twitter, and he's asking about Mac apps. So he's asking if we have any advice for an iOS developer who is willing to write Mac OS apps and if we have any resources to recommend. That's a tricky one. <laughs> I get asked that question very frequently and I would love to have some resource to send people to, like just buy this book or this course. But unfortunately, uh, there are not that many resources about Mac development. 
you will find some books. I'm sure I can't name any, but there are books for macOS development. Some of them are old, but you can find some new ones. Uh, I think there's one from last year or 2015 that's definitely still useful. But what I like to tell people is if you already do iOS development, you have a lot, like you, you, you know a lot already because macOS shares so much stuff. Some, some of the low level stuff like networking and the, some of the graphics stuff. If you have a SpriteKit game, it's really easy to port it to macOS or SceneKit. So if you are already doing iOS development, you have the tools you need to, to learn macOS development. AppKit is a weird thing. I, it's really <laughs> old and clunky sometimes. The newer APIs are a lot better. Like all of the touch bar APIs are a lot better too. Like they, they don't even look like AppKit APIs. They they are very polished and easy to use, but some of the APIs on AppKit are like strange, but you get used to it and it's definitely doable. One advice I'd give people is just look at open source projects like my WWDC app and other open source Mac apps you i i think you learn a lot uh, learn a lot from it but yeah unfortunately there are not that many resources and i think there should be because from my perspective lots of people are looking for that so there's definitely a market there and i'm talking to some people which, which i can't name <laughs> about <laughs> um myself producing some sort of like screencasts or articles about Mac development. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, follow me on Twitter. And if there are any news, I'll let you know. Wow, that's that's really exciting. Yeah, it sounds like I should maybe start writing some blog posts about Mac development. <laughs> yeah. there it, It's this uh, classic thing that I always find very funny, which is you want to know something about AppKit, so you Google or search online for... Uh, you know, set the background color of NSView. And Google says, did you mean UI view? And by the way, you can't. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's a, that's, a, that's a funny one. That's why I bring it up. So yeah, you have to set it on the layer, etc. Yeah. So that's a funny, funny difference between um, UIKit and AppKit. Uh, but I really agree with, uh, with what you said. Um, I think Mac development can be a little bit intimidating when you just start looking at it because so much that touches the UI is you know, a little bit old, and it looks very different from iOS. But once you start looking into it, you kind of see that many things are just kind of named differently, but they work very similarly. In many cases, you can actually just kind of use the same classes, but it's the NS prefix instead of the UI prefix, like NS image instead of UI image, for example. Uh, so I really don't think that people should be too intimidated by it, because I definitely learned iOS before Mac development. And I mean, I was tinkering around with Mac development, but I never really made anything. So I think um, kind of getting started with Mac development doesn't have to be as difficult as it might seem. 
And another uh, thing that makes it a little bit more approachable is the fact that when you're building UI for the Mac, you are often using standard controls. Like on iOS, a lot of the apps we work on is you know very specially designed with very custom UI and custom controls. But on the Mac, you usually just use the stock standard controls. And that makes it super easy to just build your UI in a storyboard or in a or an interface builder. And you can just, you know, use that. So you don't need to know that much about UI programming and really advanced layouts and things like that to build a Mac UI. Yeah, definitely. And you can definitely use storyboards on, on the Mac. And some things are easy to do, like if you want your app to, to be dark, like the WWDC app or Final Cut or those apps, it's just one property on NS window and all of a sudden your entire Mac app is dark. So some things are easier to do on the Mac. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to sum up, uh, it sounds like there are resources coming, <laughs> which is exciting. And I'm sure there's things out there as well that you can find. But I guess the easiest thing is to either just look at some open source projects like you suggested, or just create a new project in Xcode because so much of the kind of template, like the boilerplate that comes with a new project, you can just dive into that and you can start playing around with Interface Builder or in storyboards. And you can kind of build your own little Mac UI very kind of kind of easily uh, knowing Swift and knowing Foundation and knowing UIKit as well because so many things are similar. Yeah, and let's say you have an iOS app that you want to like uh, port to the Mac. Just do what John said: create a, a Mac app project on Xcode. Drag all of your models and all of your networking and storage and all of that stuff. Dra just drag it over from your iOS app. And if you have things properly abstracted, it will just build. And, and then you just have to worry about the UI. And it's so satisfying when you can share code between two completely different platforms. I find it fascinating. And just bring over your models and your networking code and try to make a Mac UI for your iOS app. It's not that hard. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And yeah, as long as you're not importing UIKit anywhere, which you really shouldn't be in things like your networking code or model code, uh, then things should just compile. And one simple trick, um, one thing I, I see some people use in model layers is UI image. Like they have uh, URLs that come from the server and they either cache the image or just parse the image and some model has uh, an UI image property, you can just type alias UI image to NS image, and, and that's it, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's one of those classes that is so similar. Like, they work pretty much exactly the same way on both the Mac and, and iOS. Yeah. Great. All right, I think we have time for one more question, and this one comes from Michał Nierbienski. And he is at Loyolni on Twitter. And he's asking about how can you start contributing to Swift open source projects? So this is a commonly asked question. And we've touched a little bit about it on previous episodes as well, like how to get started with open source. Uh, so I thought we could just give some quick tips here, um, wrapping up the show on how to get started with open source. What do you think, G? I think the first step is to 
try to lose your fear of being wrong. Um, I, I had this issue years ago when I was just getting started with open source. This huge fear that I'd be wrong and I, I would like send a pull request and people would like shout at me that I was doing it wrong. And the first step is to lose that. Um, other than that, try to f see like the history of pull requests for a certain project you're trying to contribute to and see how the maintainer responds and uh, see if they are nice to people <laughs> uh, or usually nice to people. Also look for beginner-friendly issues. On my WWDC app repo, I have beginner-friendly issues. So if you, if you look at the issues, they have a, a label called beginner friendly. And those are things that I think are easy for a beginner to do. So you can go there and try to fix one of those issues. And when I see a pull request for a beginner friendly issue, I'll be like extra careful about how I approach the pull request because I know that the person is probably a beginner. And if, if I can't merge it, I'll explain exactly what the person should do. And if it ends up that your pull request never gets merged and it doesn't work, don't think that it means you're not a good programmer. It just means that uh, for some reason it didn't fit the project or something. So yeah, j just like try to, to be relaxed and lose like the fear of being wrong. Yeah, that's a really good point because that I think that's something that everyone feels. Like when you put your code out in the open, uh, you're kind of scared that people will what people will think of it. And getting rid of that fear and also realizing that, you know, we're all one big community. We're all kind of working on the same kind of things. We all make mistakes. No one's perfect. And it's fine. It's completely fine. And it doesn't mean that you have to put up things online that are perfectly polished and everything is great, perfectly abstracted. There's unit tests for everything. Uh, you can just get started with something. It's fine. And you don't have to have this grand plan of, you know, I'm going to create this open source project that is going to be the next big thing and it's going to get 5,000 stars. That is like that's usually not a good motivation. Like I think the easiest thing to get started is just to either create something really small, narrow and focused that you need yourself. So if you need a way to, I don't know, colorize images or crop images or something and it doesn't exist, then you just write a little 100 line framework or tool that does that and you put it online. And that that's great, that's cool. Or you can do what G said, which is, you find a project that you've either used yourself and you you found some bug maybe, or it's something that you're interested in and you, you want to learn more about it. And you kind of search for these starter tasks or simpler issues and just try to implement it. And another way I think, uh, which sometimes get a bit overlooked when it comes to contributing is, say you find a bug, you have a couple of choices. You could either ignore the bug, which is, you know, not good. Uh, you can submit an issue, which is great. That's also contributing, by the way, to submit issues and to uh, be part of the conversation. 
or you can do something which is you can reproduce the bug in, for example, a unit test and submit that as a pull request. Now, I think that is awesome when people do that because it creates really actionable things. Like if you are not in a position where you can fix the bug, but you can create a test case that reproduces it, that is awesome because it's so much easier to fix and it also improves the overall quality of the framework. So, you know, there are so many different angles you can take and there's so many different opportunities to contribute. But I think sometimes we get so stuck on this idea that what we're contributing needs to be amazing and perfect and super original and, you know, things like that. But it really doesn't have to be. It can be really small. It can be really just something you need for yourself. Uh, and if you're looking to get started, I would suggest more thinking in those terms. Yeah, that that's really good advice. And if you just open an issue and report a bug or like some feature request and you explain it well and send screenshots or mockups that's you're you're already contributing a lot like that that's really useful yeah and as a maintainer when i get like issues that are really well formed and you know they have a lot of information that is like super great i get really really happy when i see that stuff so uh, we've reached the end of this episode. So I want to thank everybody who sent in questions. Uh, that was really great. And I want to give you a little bit of a preview of what's coming up on the next episode. So on the next episode, we're going to do another one of our special editions. And this time it's going to be all about Rx Swift. So Rx Swift, for those of you who don't know, is a reactive programming framework for Swift. And it's becoming really, really popular these days. So a lot of people are curious about it and have questions about it. So who better to answer your questions about Rx Swift than two of the co-authors of Ray Vondelich's Rx Swift book? So next episode, uh, I'm going to have Marin Todorov from Realm and Florent Pilet, who is a freelance developer who both co-authored this Rx Swift book. And they're going to be answering your questions about Rx Swift. They also both have a lot of programming experience. In fact, Marion told me just the other day that he's been coding now for 25 years, which is quite a long time. So I'm sure that's going to be a really interesting episode with lots of information about Rx Swift. So we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you very much, G, for being the guest on this episode. Thanks. It was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Really great information. And now I think a lot of people have some, uh, some tips on how to get started with reverse engineering and Mac development and open source and all kind of cool things. So you mentioned earlier that you have some new exciting projects in the works. So if people want to find out more about those things and the other things that you do, where should they find you online? I think the best place is Twitter. I'm at underline inside. So the underline symbol inside. And I have a Patreon now. Uh, so if you like what I do and you'd like to contribute, I started posting some cool like tips and tricks on reverse engineering there. There's a video about hacking Springboard on the iOS simulator. So if you find that stuff interesting, just uh, find my Patreon. It's linked on my Twitter bio. And just follow me and I'll be letting you know if I release something new. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to those things. And I really encourage people to support you on Patreon because you're doing some really, really cool stuff. 
Uh, you can find everything about this podcast and about the weekly Swift blog that I run at swiftbysundell.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at John Sundell. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.